Let's turn to Jude chapter 1. Only one chapter in Jude. But I've noticed on the various uh, Bible apps and uh, various tools online for studying, you can't just put Jude in there. You've got to put Jude 1 or it won't come up. So there's only one chapter, but it's an important chapter. And we're going to pick it up today in uh, verse 8. We've been talking about creepy men. A lot of those around. <laughs> right? Well, the ladies, I'm sure, will be quick to agree with that. At any rate, these guys crept in unnoticed into the church to introduce false doctrine, false teaching. Last week, we looked at the three examples that Jude gave us of times in the past when God has judged. Time of Noah, the flood, he judged the whole world. The angels, the fallen angels uh, from Genesis chapter 6 who left their first estate in the heavenly realms, came down to earth, got involved in some hanky-panky there with human women. And so we have these examples. And Peter, in his writings, uses the same examples. Peter and Jude were on the same page here. Let's read verses. We're only going to cover two verses today. Verses 8 and 9. Let's read those together. Likewise, also these dreamers. So first of all, he says they crept in. They were creepy. Now he identifies them as dreamers, and we'll analyze what that really means here in a moment. These dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet, Michael the archangel, so these dignitaries he speaks of, are, one translation says celestial beings. Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil... Yes, the devil is a real person. That's a stumbling block for a lot of people. But you can't believe in a real God without believing in a real devil because God in his word identifies the devil as a real person, as an adversary, as an enemy of those who desire to live uprightly before the Lord. So Michael the archangel, he's contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. And we'll analyze this as well. Michael dared not, listen to this, the highest we believe of all the archangels, so once Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, that would make Michael the top angel, second in command after God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they disputed about the body of Moses, but Michael dared not bring against him a reviling accusation he did not call him a lying dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> Michael wouldn't do that. Now, I know somebody who would. No. <laughs> if you follow the news, you know what I'm talking about. But said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And, you know, as I've shared many times, my mentor, Pastor Chuck Smith, always used to say, I prefer to have the Lord between me and the devil. You know, you might say, Satan, I rebuke you, but what if you haven't been walking too tight with the Lord lately? What if you've got some unconfessed sin in your life? Do you think the devil's going to listen to you? 
But when you say the Lord rebuke you, he, can't, he has no comeback because the Lord is perfect in all of his ways. He is holy and just and righteous. And we remember when Christ was here on the earth, the demons trembled in his presence, did they not? I'm not sure they always tremble in our presence, but they will tremble in his presence. So Michael sets the example really for all of us. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless this time in your word this morning. Speak to our hearts. Challenge us. Stir us. Encourage us. Just do all those great things that you do for us, Father, as we study this passage together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says here in verse 8, Likewise also, or as one translation reads, in the very same way. So he's referring back to the previous verses that we studied last week. Likewise also, or in the very same way, in the same way as the fallen angels, as the people, various judgments that we studied last week, he's saying that these men too, these false teachers, these deceivers, will be judged. Jude 1.6, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. Jude 1.7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Likewise, also, these dreamers will be judged. And what does this mean when he refers to them as dreamers? Well, as I've analyzed this, my understanding involves three things at least. One, uh, these men had illusions of grandeur. And we've seen that with some of the modern-day false prophets and false teachers. Again, they're ones who crept into the church and many times amassed a huge following, made a lot of money, illusions of grandeur, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. Romans 12, 3. Paul, whom I would argue no man of God, so to speak, on the planet today could measure up to the Apostle Paul. What do you think? I don't. And here's what Paul says. I say, through the grace given to me, what is grace? God's unmerited favor. Paul knew he didn't deserve the salvation that God had bestowed upon him. He was a legalistic Pharisee. He went around hunting down Christians to arrest them and hopefully kill them. And yet he had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. Jesus transformed him, changed his life. He says, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's exactly the opposite of what we're taught in the world. In our schools, the psychological teaching and training and so forth, everywhere you look, we're being told you need to build up your self-esteem, right? You need to think more highly of yourself. You can't be successful in life unless you really learn to love yourself. How many Have you heard this stuff? No, we need to learn to love God. We need to learn to appreciate His grace like Paul did. For what Paul had done, he deserved to die. We all deserve to die because of our sin. The answer to a fruitful, happy, healthy, joyful life is not to learn to think more highly of yourself. Paul says... Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone who's among you, 
not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. The Bible tells us pride goes before a fall. But to think soberly, realistically. Most of the problems that people encounter in life have to do with thinking too highly of themselves. It certainly has manifested itself in the church. It certainly is manifesting itself in the governmental, judicial part of our world today. There's a lot of people in the academia, the world of academia, education. The biggest problem we have is we have a bunch of big blowhards who think too highly of themselves. They have no humility. They think they know better than everybody else. I don't care if it's the church, the school, the workplace. When you have people there like that, you're going to have problems. But think soberly. Don't become intoxicated with your own self. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Don't overstep the amount of faith that God has given you. God gives everyone, every believer, everyone who has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ has received a measure of faith from God that has enabled them to believe in Him. But some have the faith of a Billy Graham, a Franklin Graham, you name it. Others, we just have the faith to lead a quiet, simple life in Christ. That's okay. Just be who God has created you to be Enjoy the life that you have in Christ and don't overstep the boundaries of what God has given you and what he's called you to do. And when that happens, it's because people are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. That's why we see so many schisms and divisions and churches and these guys creep, the creeps, the creepy men creep in and they think that they know better than the people who are leading the church and so they begin to sow seeds of doubt, division, Tear churches apart. Gives God a bad name. You know, if, if that's who you are, if that's how you operate, you think you know better, go start your own church. See who comes. Then we'll find out, won't we? And if it works, good. Praise God. God bless you. But these dreamers, these men who have illusions of grandeur, and then they justify their false teachings by citing visions they supposedly had. That's how the Mormon church began when a young Joseph Smith, I believe he was only about 15 at the time, if I'm not mistaken, claimed to have had these visions, had an encounter with an angelic being. And by the way, not all angelic beings are on the, the right side. They're not all good guys. He supposedly discovered some golden tablets and on and on it goes. And now millions of people worldwide have been totally deceived by a cult, by a false belief system that has set aside the truth of the Bible and has their own whole set of books. Book of Mormon, I read it in junior high, my best friend was a Mormon. I'd been brought up in Sunday school and church. I could immediately tell there was something wrong with that book. It wasn't like the Bible. Then they have the Doctrine and Covenants. They have all these... There's warnings in both the book of Malachi and the book of Revelation. Woe to him who adds to or takes away from these holy scriptures. And yet, pretty much every cult group does that. Ellen G. White. I looked this up. I was trying to recall, you know, which ones of these various cult leaders 
started their ministries based upon visions. I already knew for sure Joseph Smith, Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, also founded her belief system on the basis of a so-called vision that she had. Again, Seventh-day Adventism does exactly what the Apostle Paul had fought against in the New Testament, and that was taking back people back into bondage under legalism, under the Old Testament law. And then we have all the uh, popular past and present TV preachers who uh, have shared their various so-called visions with us, and they use those visions. It's just like we talked about with the book Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Now, she doesn't claim visions as far as I recall, but she claims conversations with Jesus, and then she puts them into her book, and then people start reading her book instead of the Bible. Because if there's new revelation from God, most people want the latest and the greatest, right? And yet, God's Word says there is no latest or greatest. This is the first and the last, the final word on God's authority. <laughs> Jeremiah 23, 25 through 7. I have heard what the prophets have said. This is God speaking. Who... Uh, have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? So this is not a new phenomenon, folks. It's been going on for thousands of years. Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. I think the reason why so many of these people are so effective is because they themselves are deceived. They have come to believe their own lies, and therefore, they're very convincing. Verse 7, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor, as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. How often do you hear someone say, well, you know, all these are just different names for God. You know, you've got Buddha, you've got Krishna, you've got Allah. It's all the same God. No, it's not. God just said these false prophets are, in, are practicing causing people to forget His name. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, His Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. The Bible says God only has one Son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. There's only one God. Hero, Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord your God is one. In the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't even bring them and get them out of my face. I don't want to see all your false gods. There's only one God, the creator of all things. And see that to the unenlightened, that sounds narrow-minded, dogmatic, and so forth. But if you were God, wouldn't you want people to know that you are the one true God? And wouldn't you be jealous of any other false gods that came along? You've got to look at it from God's perspective. Plus, if there truly is only one God, and you believe in any other God but Him, then you're, you're headed for disaster. Remember, Jude likes groups of three. So we see these three things these guys do. First of all, Jude tells us they defile the flesh. Or one translation reads, pollute their own bodies. How? With sexual immorality and perversion. How do you pollute your body? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Paul talks about not joining yourself to a harlot because as a believer, when you do that, you're joining Jesus to the harlot as well. He says, you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body, the physical body. We talked about antinomianism, Gnosticism, where they said, you can do whatever you want with your body because all flesh is corrupt, all flesh is carnal, but the spirit is totally separate. So you can be a spiritual being and worship God, but then you can do whatever you want with your body. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's God sees us as one integral unit, body, soul, and spirit. We're to glorify God with every part of who we are. And if we're defiling the flesh, that's really an outward sign of what's inside of us. Moses David Berg, I looked him up again the other day. He was the founder of the Children of God. He was once a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, but he went off the rails and started a cult. And his timing was perfect because it was right as the Jesus movement hit in the late 60s and tons of young people were coming to Christ. But his ministry, if you want to call it that, was just laced and fraught with sexual immorality. In fact, he encouraged the young people in his ministry to convert other young people by sleeping with them. Moses David, the children of God, all those Phoenix folks, Joaquin Phoenix, River Phoenix, that whole family, they were brought up in the children of God, and they don't want anything to do with God now. Damaged a lot of people, Tony Alamo, Tony and Susan Alamo, they used to have a ministry out in California, then it moved to Texas, but I remember we would do these Jesus concerts and thousands of kids would show up, come forward, get saved. Tony and Susan Alamo would, would drive their buses up outside the auditorium. And as these kids would come out, they would shuffle on them onto the buses and take them away to their compound where they would brainwash them. All in the name of God, in the name of Christ. Tony Alamo later was imprisoned for multiple sexual assaults on underage girls. This is a hallmark of these false teachers. David Koresh, remember Branch Davidian? One of his rules was every woman in his cult had to sleep with him. Paul Crouch, towards the end of his life, he was exposed for some nefarious activities with a male member of his staff. We know all the problems the Catholic Church has had. They justified their false teachings by citing visions, but then they defile the flesh, they pollute their own bodies. Verse 7 we read last week, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so their judgment was not only physical as God raining down fire and brimstone from heaven, there was an eternal judgment as well. The second thing is James, or Jude's group of three here, they defile the flesh, they reject authority. And so what you see, these false teachers, in the early church, they rebelled against the authority of the apostles and the local church leaders, and they come up with these really spiritual-sounding statements like, I'm loyal to no man, only to Jesus. That's really a cop-out. It's a way of saying, I don't want to submit to anyone's authority. I'm only loyal to Jesus. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1.11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. 
Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul. Now you'd think Paul would like that. Oh, he's got his followers. No, he doesn't want that. I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, which was another name for Peter. Remember, Simon Peter was Cephas. So they had these factions. Nowadays, we call them denominations, right? This was, even in the first century, the denominations were beginning to form. The Pauline church, the Apollonian church, the Cephian church. Or then you got your ultra-spiritual ones that say, or I am of Christ. Paul does not even commend that because he knew that it was an arrogant, false sense of spirituality by saying, oh, no, I don't follow Paul or Peter. or anything. I follow Jesus. Doesn't that sound so spiritual? Oh, I follow Jesus. Yeah, right. 1 Samuel 15, 23. Samuel, the prophet, dealt with Saul, the king of Israel, for his rebellion against God, which Saul tried to justify. Here's what Samuel says to Saul. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Wow. I just read where we already knew this, but the latest information uh, indicates that it's an ongoing phenomenon that the rise in those who practice witchcraft is expanding exponentially. It's becoming more and more popular. Part of the article says that particularly those of the younger generation are turning away from traditional Christianity in favor of witchcraft, seeking the power that they can find in that. There's power in the blood of the Lamb, folks, in Jesus Christ. But it's on the rise. There's even a large group of Wiccans who uh, have made it their mission to curse and hex our president and probably others uh, in government and so forth. So the good news is greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. So here's a key little piece of information. If you're asking yourself, well, how do, I don't want to be rebellious. I don't want to be stubborn. How do I know? Well, if you are rejecting the word of the Lord, now you might read it, you might even say you believe it, but if you don't obey it, then you're in rebellion to God. You're in earthly authority, which God has established. Here's the problem. Earthly authority is imperfect. Now, the way it should work is that as a believer, you choose to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of a local church, local pastors. But I know of some groups where once you're in there, they won't let you out. I've had family members involved in some of those groups. They heap condemnation upon you. They intimidate you. If you leave this church, then you're going to hell. People have told me that they were told that. You're not in the will of God. You're going to hell, blah, blah, blah. Placing yourself under human earthly authority is a choice. Now, if you get a job, if you're choosing to place yourself under the authority of the people who run that place that you work for. It doesn't matter whether it's the church, the workplace, if you're in the military, in any arena of life, we're all going to find ourselves in the place where we have to submit to authority. The problem is that those authorities aren't perfect. And when you see their imperfections, then you chafe at the bit 
and you want to rebel because you say, who are they to tell me what to do? Right? But here's the deal. It's the same thing in marriage. It's not real popular today to talk about the biblical model for marriage because the Bible teaches that a wife is supposed to be submissive to her husband. Nobody likes that today. They don't want to hear that. Why is that? Because our society breaks down, our world breaks down, our culture breaks down if we don't have any clearly defined lines of authority, you see? That doesn't mean the person in authority is perfect or even close to it. But the Bible teaches that when we obey God by submitting ourselves to authority, whether it's at work, in school, in the church, in the marriage, then God will bless you. You could have the worst boss in the world, but if you submit to his authority, and I always give the three qualifiers, unless they ask you to do something immoral, unbiblical, or illegal, then you're not obligated. The apostles told the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin told the apostles, you cannot, must not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And the apostles said to them, sorry guys, we have to obey God rather than you. So God does give us some instances where we don't have to submit to authority if it's requiring us to do something illegal, immoral, or unbiblical. Other than that, we are to honor God by submitting not only to His authority, but to earthly authority. And He promises if we do that, He will bless us. Let me give you an example where people didn't submit to earthly authority. During World War II, when the Nazis were killing millions of Jews, there were people all over Europe hiding Jewish people to protect them. Corey Ten Boom, the Ten Boom family in Harlem, in the Netherlands. Holland, I forgot the old name for it. It's been Netherlands for so long. They hid Jews in their home. Ultimately, they were all arrested, and all of them except Corey Ten Boom died in prison. But they did the right thing. The Nazis were doing the wrong thing. They were killing innocent people, God's chosen people, the Jews. And these people determined to stand against that and protect these people. They did the right thing, and most of them died for it. But that's an example when we don't have to obey earthly authority, human authority, when they're doing horrible, ungodly things. But these guys rejected authority. Men are quite capable of elevating themselves, are they not? But God will never elevate you to a position of authority until you first learn to submit to authority. So if you find somebody in a position of authority who has never learned to submit to authority, first and foremost, God's authority, secondarily, the authority of men, oh, I don't answer to anybody but God. That's a, that's a dead giveaway right there. God will not do it. So if you see someone that's been elevated who is not respectful of authority, submissive to some authority, then you can be sure God did not elevate them. They elevated themselves. Matthew 8, 5 through 9. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. He was a Gentile. 
Jews and Gentiles did not normally socialize, interact, and so forth. And the centurion was very humble. Here's a man who's a leader. A centurion was a leader over a hundred men. He says, I'm not even worthy, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man, notice, look at this, under authority, having soldiers under me. So here's a guy who was put in a position of authority because he was submitting to those in authority over him. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's how it's supposed to work. We live in a world today where there's very little understanding of or respect for authority. Again, it really has nothing to do with the person in authority. It has to do with whether or not you're going to be someone who respects and submits to authority or not. If that person in authority is not doing what they should be doing, God will deal with them. Somehow they will be dealt with. The Bible says God raises up leaders and he takes down leaders. In his timing, if we do what we're supposed to do, God will deal with that person and expose that person. But that's not your job. That's not my job. That's God's job. So this centurion obviously recognized Jesus had authority over sickness, right? Lord, you don't even have to come. I know who you are. I know what power and authority you have. All you got to do is speak the word right here, and my servant will be healed. What do you think of that amount of faith? That's some faith, isn't it? That Gentile Roman centurion putting to shame those of Jesus' own household, his own family, the people of Israel, the amount of faith that man had. In fact, Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. But then you get these guys going, hey man, look out, I've got the anointing. I submit to no one but God. No, you don't have the anointing. You don't have the anointing. You've got a fake anointing. You've got a trumped up, pardon the expression, fake anointing. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you. One translation says obey your leaders. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. So obviously Peter's speaking within the context of the church. He's talking about spiritual leaders here. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. To who? God. Let them do so with joy. Let them rule over you. Let them lead you with joy. In other words, be respectful, be submissive, so that they can enjoy that leadership position that God has placed them in, not with grief. I can tell you from personal experience and all the multitude of pastors I've known over the years, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in this area. There's a lot of grief. I'm not whining, I'm not complaining, but there's a lot of grief in leadership. Everybody thinks that's the glory gig. Be the top dog. You get to run the show. You get all the glory, all the, you know, recognition. No, it's, there's a lot of grief. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable or not beneficial for you. Nobody likes a grumpy pastor. Don't bum his trip or it may become uncomfortable for you. I'm not threatening you. I'm just 
interpreting the verse there. Submission to authority is biblical. It's right. It's proper. It results in blessings for everyone involved. But one of the three things we're looking at here with these creepy men, these dreamers who think more highly of themselves than they ought to and justify their false teachings with their so-called visions, is they defile themselves with sexual immorality, impurity. They reject authority. 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now, I have a tendency to drive slightly over the speed limit. Not always, but I usually limit to about five miles. But I'll be going down the freeway, 65, 70. People go flying past me like 90 or 100 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, what a crazy person. It's a total disregard for authority, for the law, and it's also very dangerous. And we're living in a day and age where fewer and fewer people have any respect for the law or authority. And in California, they've passed a law where if you steal less than $950 worth of money or merchandise, they don't even arrest you or prosecute you. You just go free. So what we have now in California, people going through the stores, just going picking out things and walking out with them. There's nothing that can be done. I call that a societal breakdown. If you notice more and more in different stores like Walmart, Smith's, you go in, they're building more and more cages around everything. Have you noticed that? It's kind of creepy and it's kind of freaky. You go down an aisle and you're trapped. You can't get out. Walmart has all these little thingies now, these little barriers. Have you seen those? Because there's so much thievery. So you see, when there's no respect for authority, when there's no respect for the rule of law, pretty soon you have a total societal breakdown. And that's where we're rapidly headed right now. So guess who knows who, what he's talking about? God. I was shocked because they were talking about this whole controversy with Roger Stone getting seven to nine years in prison for being set up and, li and lying to Congress. Uh, the, average, uh, the average sentence for a rapist is... Um, 4.2 years. The average sentence for armed robbery is like a year and a half. And you wonder why so many people are doing this stuff. A lot of people, a year and a half, that's, hey, that's three free square meals a day for a year and a half. And they have some great workout equipment there. I can go in, get buff, and go out and do it again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And by the way, the Bible also says in Galatians chapter 6, whatsoever you sow, that you shall also reap. So a lot of people think they're getting away with a lot of stuff. But guess what? God's word is true. He's not a man that he should lie. And when he says that we will reap what we sow, he means exactly that. Now how, what that looks like and when that happens, only God knows. It could be in this life, it could be in the next, it could be both. But you'd think more people would be concerned about that. Whatever I sow, that's what I'm going to reap. Hello? Hello? 
The Bible says God cannot be robbed. He cannot be mocked. You see, we talked about humility, which these creeps don't have. Submission and humility go hand in hand. If you can't or won't submit to those in authority, whether it's in the church, at work, at school, then you're not humble. It's that simple. If you won't submit to authority, you are not humble. You think you know better. You think you're the captain of your own ship, which is the scariest thing that could ever happen. I don't want a captain in my own ship. I want Jesus to be the captain. If I captain my own ship, I know I'm going to run aground. I'm going to crash. I'm going to sink. If you're not submission to authority, then you're not humble. And if you're not humble, then you're not following God. Hello? 1 Peter 5, 5, 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Well, again, a lot's changed in the last half a century or so. There used to be a lot more respect for older people in submission. Now they're looked upon as dead weight, out of touch, out of step. Once upon a time, older people were looked upon as people who had wisdom, experience, knowledge, understanding, someone to be a mentor. But now everybody's trying to stay eternally young through plastic surgery and health club memberships and uh, testosterone boosters and what have you. Right? Nobody wants to get old. Why? Because old people in our society are outcasts. They're looked down upon. They're cast aside. They're a drag on... Man, you're really a drag. And yet we see in the Bible... Younger people, submit. Does that mean these older people are perfect? No. But we do have some mileage. You know, our motors have definitely been broken in. <laughs> yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And that, I've thought about this before. The biggest downfall of young people is pride. It's a lack of humility. You know, kids get to a certain age and all of a sudden the tables have turned and they know a lot more than their parents do, right? My parents are really stupid. They don't know anything. The biggest downfall of young people is pride, lack of humility. But you take the energy, the enthusiasm, the excitement of a young person and you couple that with humility and man, I'm telling you, you've got a powerhouse. Remember King David, young King David? Teenager when he slew Goliath. If we can get young people to understand the importance of humility, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, and you take that and put that together with all the energy and enthusiasm and excitement, you're at your peak with your mental capacities and so physical capacities, man, you can conquer the world. But if you're filled with pride and arrogance... You're headed for a fall. And God can't use you. God can't use I know who can. Who can use you if you're like that? Now you may go out and try to do it in the name of Jesus, but it won't be Jesus backing you up. And you will be doing great harm to lots of people because you'll be leading them astray through your pride, your arrogance, your deception. And that's happening in many quarters of the church today, as well as the world.
Therefore, here we go. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And the biggest downfall of older people is apathy. Okay? Young people, pride. Old people, apathy. We have to fight that with all that is within us. Don't become apathetic. Stay excited about God. Stay energized till your last breath. Apathy, lethargy, complacence. That's the greatest pitfall for older people. Lack of vision, lack of enthusiasm. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And yet, I've heard so many people say, well, I guess you know, the devil is on my case. He's coming against me. He's fighting me. But maybe, what if it's God resisting you because you're full of pride? Think about that one. Think of that possibility. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You think the time is now. Maybe it's not. And again, if you've got the timing wrong, it's probably because you've got pride. If you're walking in humility before the Lord, you will be patient and you will wait upon Him to do that work in your life that He wants to do in His perfect timing. Can't tell you how many times people have come and gone here and they come in guns a-blazing and they're telling me that, you know, that they're a prophet and they're a teacher and they're this and they're that, a worship leader. But if they don't get elevated immediately, then they're out of town. They're, they split. They're gone. They can't wait for God's timing. And those who do wait for God's timing get blessed. Those who don't usually just keep going round and round the same old mountain. They go here, they go there. They might make their way in for a little while, but it never lasts. Thirdly, they speak evil of dignitaries or slander celestial beings or angelic majesties Literally, glories. These foolish mortal men, these creepy men, these false teachers, false prophets, they speak evil of dignitaries, they slander celestial beings. 2 Peter 2, 9 through 11. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So here we have that same theme again of judgment. Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. All these things tend to go hand in hand. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Again, it's talking about celestial beings, angelic beings and so forth. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might than men. Now, we're special to God because he sent his son to die on the cross for us. But in the overall universal scheme of things, angelic beings actually hold a higher position than we do. We read in the book of Psalms, I believe it is, where it says, he has made us a little lower than the angels. And yet, Christ died for us. But, 
angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Remember Michael and Jude? Dared not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the clearest, most graphic example I can think of is you see sometimes these TV preachers, these faith preachers that mock the devil. I'm going to stomp on that old devil's head. Hallelujah. You know, and they laugh at him, make fun of the devil. Oh, he's just a toothless old lion. Wait a minute. Peter says, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be serious, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks or prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't sound too toothless to me. Now we know that Christ defeated him on the cross. We know that Satan no longer holds the keys to death. But that only applies to those who choose to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're not born again, the devil's got you right where he wants you. You shouldn't mock him or make fun of him. Now, sometimes I've said this before, we give him too much airtime. We blame everything on him, right? Just like Flip Wilson, if you're old enough to remember him, you're as old as I am. <laughs> that comedian, African-American comedian, I loved him. What was that character he used to play? What? Geraldine, yeah. The devil made me do it, honey. Geraldine was, whatever she did, naughty. She said, the devil made me do it, honey. And sometimes we're like that. We blame everything on him. Like I say, wait a minute, maybe God is resisting you because you're being prideful. Or God is allowing this to strengthen you, to build you up. What the devil intends for evil, God intends for good. We shouldn't give him too much airtime. The, the number one name that should be coming out of our mouths is Jesus. The name above all names. But we also not to mock him or his cohorts. And that's something that these guys tend to do. They don't have a respect for, for human authority. They don't have a respect for angelic authority, so to speak. And obviously not for God's authority either. Verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So the false teachers that Jude is speaking of here, according to Jude, they had no respect for authority or for angels. Their slandering of celestial beings stands in arrogant contrast to the chief angelic being Michael, who would not dare slander Satan, chief of the fallen angels. There is an apocryphal work that means it's extra-biblical. Now, in the Catholic Bible, they do have the Apocrypha, which we, the Protestant Church, do not accept as being divinely inspired. But there are other apocryphal books. We've talked about the Book of Enoch. And some of these apocryphal books, although they were not considered divinely inspired to the point that they were accepted into the biblical canon that we have today, they still are viewed as having valuable information. One of them it's called the Assumption of Moses. And here in the Assumption of Moses, here's a section about Michael the archangel. Michael is the greatest of all the angels, Daniel 10, 13, and 21. He has a special role in the history and future of Israel. His name means who is like God. Michael and Satan, who is the chief of the fallen angels, have always been in conflict, and Michael will ultimately defeat Satan 
in Revelation 12:7. The archangel Michael was sent to bury Moses' body, but according to Jewish tradition, the devil argued with the angel about the body, apparently claiming the right to dispose of it, but Michael, though powerful and authoritative, did not dare dispute with Satan, so he left the matter in God's hands, saying, The Lord rebuke you. Now there's another strong possibility here of what was going on between Michael and Satan. From the scriptures we know that Moses' body was raised because he appeared to the disciples along with Elijah and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember? Matthew 17, 1 through 4, Jesus has an encounter with Elijah and Moses who are alive and well, who have come down from heaven to meet with Jesus. We have... Three examples in the Bible of men who were given glorified bodies as examples and promises of the time when all of God's people would be raised. Three men in three stages of history. First, Enoch in the time of the fathers of the human race. Genesis 5.24, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not. Was not what? He was not here. He went up there. And he never died a physical death. He was transformed, he was translated, just like we will be in the rapture. In fact, Enoch is, again, a type of the rapture of the church, of the believers. He was literally caught up alive into heaven and transformed, I'm sure, on the way. Because these bodies can't survive in heaven. We will be given an immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, eternal body that can survive in any environment. The second one... The second one, we're about to wrap up here, so you can, you can clap for that too. <laughs> the second one was Moses when the law was given and the nation of Israel was being formed. Again, we're talking about that scenario here with Michael and Satan. Moses uh, has already received his glorified eternal body. And then Elijah, 2 Kings 11, as one of God's prophets when Israel and Judah had formed two kingdoms, Satan, who had the power of death, argued that Moses' body should be, not be raised because he'd sinned at Meribah when he struck the rock. So Elijah was caught up, 2 Kings 2.11, in the chariot of fire, remember, in a whirlwind. Elijah did not taste physical death. Now Moses did taste physical death, but he also has been resurrected and appeared before Christ. Satan's argument, it is proposed, had to do with the fact that Moses blew it when he got mad at the people of Israel and struck the rock. You see, he struck the rock the first time the water came out. That was symbolic of Jesus being stricken for us and the living waters coming forth. The second time, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock. The rock only needs to be stricken once. Jesus only had to die once on the cross. So Moses ruined that typology before the people of Israel, and that's why he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. So there are those who believe that was the bone of contention, if you will, between Satan and Michael. At any rate, obviously Satan did not prevail because the Lord rebuked him. So next week we'll pick it up in verse 10, which reads, These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. We'll have to leave it there. Let's stand. Out of death into life. You come if you need prayer.